This is the mop-up for August 26, 2023. On the heels of his Thursday arrest in Fulton County, Georgia, Donald Trump did an interview with Newsmax on Friday where he said, quote, I took a mugshot. I never heard the words mugshot. They didn't teach me that at the Wharton School of Finance. They didn't teach you that at Wharton, hmm? Six bankruptcies, your first wife is buried in a pauper's grave. Apparently, there are a lot of things they didn't teach you at the Wharton School of Finance. This is Harrison Floyd. His real name is Willie Lewis Floyd. He is the former leader of Black Voices for Trump. And this is his mugshot. He is one of the 19 defendants in the racketeering case filed by the Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney's Office. Harrison Floyd is 39, and he oversaw black outreach for Donald Trump's 2020 presidential campaign, all one of them. Floyd is charged with racketeering, conspiracy to solicit false statements, and influencing witnesses. According to the indictment, after the 2020 presidential election, Harrison Floyd sent Trevion Cootie, Kanye West's publicist, down to Georgia to scare the hell out of Ruby Freeman, an African-American election worker. Ruby Friedman and her daughter, Shay Moss, were election workers in Georgia. They were defamed by Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani, who falsely accused them of stuffing ballots for Joe Biden. Ruby Friedman and Shay Moss's life immediately turned into a living hell. Racially tinged death threats came their way and they had to go into hiding. Now, according to the indictment, Harrison Floyd told Trevion Cootie, Kanye's publicist, that's her mugshot, to visit Ruby Freeman and tell her that her life is in danger. But there's a billionaire. I can't tell you who he is. He wants to help save your life because you are in a lot of danger. They're coming. They're going to arrest you. But the billionaire who sent me wants to help. But the only way this billionaire can protect you is if you recant your claims and say Donald Trump is telling the truth, that you did, in fact, feed bony, phony ballots, phony Biden ballots into the machines. This is some evil, evil stuff, right? OK, the mother and daughter, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, said no, they refused and so Trevian Cootie and Harrison Floyd were indicted along with 17 others. Harrison Floyd, uh, Floyd and Trevian Cootie uh, were charged with essentially witness tampering. All 19 defendants now have been fingerprinted, printed. They've gotten their mugshots taken. They have been processed. They all posted bond. And they were sent home. All 19 of the indicted co-conspirators, everyone, mugshots, fingerprinted, and they were all sent home except the black man, Harrison Floyd. The one black man in this indictment is still in Fulton, Fulton County Jail this morning. On Friday, Fulton County Superior Court Judge Emily Richardson refused to allow Harrison Floyd to post bond because he's a flight risk. 
Donald Trump has his own jet, but Harrison Floyd is the flight risk. What are the odds? What are the odds out of 19 defendants who got processed this week by the Fulton County Jail? The one black man in of the 19, he's not free to leave. What are the odds? The only defendant who must stay inside the overcrowded, scabies-infested death trap of a jail is the black guy. There are two uh, side stories to this big indictment. Uh, There is the story of election workers, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, being intimidated into lying and saying they stuff ballots for Biden. They backed down. And I went into detail on this story earlier in the week. There's also another story about the lawyer, Sidney Powell, indicted partly, partly for breaking into the voting machines inside Coffee County, Georgia. That's a story that I will touch on next week. And then there's also the phone call to the Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, where Trump and his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, lied about election fraud and tried to convince Brad Raffensperger to change the election results. There's also the story in the indictments of Trump harassing Georgia governor, Republican governor, Brian Kemp, into convening a special session of the state legislature to investigate phony phony claims of voter fraud. And then there is the story of the lawyer, John Eastman, filing a suit in the Georgia courts filled with false claims of voter fraud, misrepresenting, lying about voter fraud in writing. Uh, He lied uh, about Georgia election official Gabe Sterling. He said that Gabe Sterling, uh, in the brief, Eastman said that uh, Gabe Sterling said there is massive evidence of voter fraud. He did not say that. Eastman, in his brief requesting Governor Kemp to investigate, just out, just lies about Gabe Sterling's findings. Sterling said there was no voter fraud. You might remember Gabe Sterling in the middle of December back in 2020 of uh, holding a press conference and telling Donald Trump to stop spreading lies. It's getting dangerous. There are death threats. He was the first one really to warn. Gabe Sterling was the first one to warn us of Donald Trump's plan to turn to violence in January 6. So there are those stories that you can glean from the indictment. But this morning, uh, I'm going to try to give you a broader picture of what this trial in Georgia is all about. I want to give you a vertical, a a top-down understanding of how deep Donald Trump's criminal enterprise truly is. And and I think if you stay with me, you'll understand the the story that Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis is telling us. Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis's RICO prosecution down in Georgia has several working parts but it's also a story with several chapters. It's the story of a criminal enterprise, racketeers 
who took part in a massive conspiracy to defraud the government of the United States, the government of Georgia, and they attempted to disenfranchise a majority of voters in that state who picked Joe Biden to be their president and not Donald Trump. To carry out this scheme, multiple state laws were broken. Most notably, conspiracy to commit election fraud. Election fraud is against the law in Georgia. To commit election fraud, the defendants, in this case, lied to other government officials, which is also against the law in Georgia. You are not allowed to make or write false statements before government officials or in government settings. You are not allowed to conspire with others to solicit underlings to make false statements or put false statements into writing. You're not allowed to perjure yourself when you go before the grand jury handing down the indictments in this case. You're not allowed to tamper with the counting of the votes by intimidating election officials or getting them to confess to stuffing the machines with Biden ballots, even though they didn't. You're not allowed to crack open voting machines, copy the data, put it on the Internet and crowdsource the search for election fraud. In all, down in Georgia, 41 laws were alleged to have been broken in a massive conspiracy that included the 19 defendants, as well as 30 unindicted co-conspirators. This is a massive indictment. There are currently 19 defendants. I will explain later while I think that number will be whittled down significantly. But topping the pyramid of this criminal, criminal enterprise is Donald Trump, okay? I want to explain the, the structure that Fawny Willis has uncovered. It is a cr criminal enterprise. This is mafia stuff, okay? Directly below Donald Trump is his White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, right? Nothing sits on Donald Trump's desk in the White House unless it first goes through Mark Meadows. Any crimes that Donald Trump committed, Mark Meadows aided and abetted. He witnessed them. He was his chief of staff. He saw everything. So Meadows has been indicted along with the other 18 defendants for violating Georgia's RICO Act. He's also been indicted for soliciting the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, to alter the election results in favor of Donald Trump. It was Mark Meadows who arranged all the phone calls, all the meetings, and uh, he arranged the infamous phone call with the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. He's also heard on tape lying to the Georgia Secretary of State, telling him that he himself had evidence of massive voter fraud in Georgia, even though Mark Meadows' own son, a lawyer in Georgia, was sent to look for voter fraud in Georgia and told his dad, I can't find any. And that prompted Mark Meadows to walk around the White House joking, 
before this call to the Georgia Secretary of State, Mark Meadows was heard cracking jokes about voter fraud, saying it's non-existent, but it was funny to him. It was funny. So I'm going to go vertically down the chain of command of this criminal enterprise. So it starts with Donald Trump, and then it goes to Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, his consigliere, if you will. Okay. Right below Meadows is Rudy Giuliani. Rudy was the top lawyer in this criminal enterprise. Now, he wasn't working for the federal government. He wasn't working for the Republican Party. He wasn't even working for the White House. He was brought in by Donald Trump, and he worked for free to go out in public to cash in his equity stake as America's mayor, a trusted figure in conservative circles, and claim voter fraud on television and in the courts. Below Rudy was Sidney Powell. She was a, a lawyer. She's also been indicted. This is her mugshot. And parallel to Sidney Powell is the lawyer Jenna Ellis. Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis traveled to Georgia as well as six other battleground states right after Joe Biden was declared the winner to convince the state legislatures of massive voter fraud in the hope that they would, the state legislatures would convene special sessions to overturn the election results and send a slate of Trump electors instead of a slate of Biden electors to Washington to be counted on January 6th by Vice President Mike Pence. Okay, so below Rudy were the two lawyers, Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis. All three of them, Rudy, Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, they made the rounds of right-wing news networks, which resulted in Dominion suing Fox News and getting three quarters of a billion dollars. Smartmatic Voting Machines is now suing Fox for $3.5 million, specifically because Rudy and Sidney Powell went on Fox and trashed Dominion Voting Machines, came up with those crazy conspiracies about Dominion Voting Machines. So Fox had to pay Dominion three quarters of a billion dollars in a settlement because they had Rudy and Sidney Powell on the show. Newsmax now is being sued by Dominion and by Smartmatic for close to a billion dollars. Same reason. They had Rudy and Sidney Powell on their network spreading falsehoods about voting machines uh, uh, on Election Day in 2020. So below Rudy were the two lawyers, Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis, And they made the rounds of the right-wing news networks and appeared before state legislatures soliciting Republican election officials in all seven of these key battleground states to reverse the election results. Okay, so now you got this is the order, the pecking order. You got Trump, you got his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, then you got Rudy. And below Rudy are Jenna Ellis 
and Sidney Powell. Uh, okay, now below Trump, you got uh, below Mark Meadows, below Rudy, below Sidney Powell, below Jenny Al- Jenna Ellis were two other lawyers who remain somewhat in the shadows, pumping the legal gasoline into the machine to keep Trump's criminal racket humming. They are John Eastman and Kenneth Cheesebro. Okay, now, these two men wrote the legal memos filled with falsehoods, half-truths, convincing Trump as well as Rudy as well as Sidney Powell, as well as Jenna Ellis, that they were well within their legal rights to organize slates of phony electors in seven of those key battleground states, including Georgia, that Joe Biden had won. Their memos, you're looking at Kenneth Cheesebro, his memo included attachments for documents to be forged by the phony electors who were meeting in each state. These memos included the specific laws in each of the seven states regarding the meeting of electors to guarantee that the phony slate of electors appeared as legitimate as possible. In the memos, they even acknowledge that technically this is all against federal as well as state law. These memos provided the phony legal heft surrounding the false claim that Vice President Mike Pence, that his responsibility on January 6 was more than just ceremonial. They drilled holes into the 12th Amendment and the Electoral Count Act of 1887, twisting language so that an enfeebled legal mind could be convinced that Mike Pence was allowed to stop the count on Election Day. So the purpose of getting Mike Pence to stop the count, as suggested in these memos, the purpose was to create so much confusion, so much doubt about the 2020 presidential election that the Supreme Court would order that election to be decided by Congress, the same way Congress ended up deciding the presidency in 1876, the most contentious election in U.S. history. An election that necessitated the Electoral Count Act of 1887, which attempted to clarify the procedures for counting the electoral votes after a presidential election. The Electoral Count Act of 1887 is poorly worded, but it was essentially followed and obeyed by a series of norms throughout the decades where it was agreed, but not specifically written into law, that the job of the vice president was purely ceremonial. In law, there is something I call squatter's rights, to implementation. If the vice president's role has been purely ceremonial on January 6, since at least 1887, then it establishes on its own layer upon layer of precedent through action 
to become what is essentially a de facto law as opposed to de jure. De jure means by written law, de facto law is a law that's based on norms, on reality, by the day-to-day practices. And so John Eastman, the lawyer John Eastman and the lawyer Kenneth Cheesebro working for Donald Trump, who has no respect for these norms, they looked for loopholes in the Constitution, the Electoral Count Act of 1887, as well as the 12th Amendment, and they wrote memos, memos and memos that said an argument could be made. They literally said, but they didn't literally, well, they did literally, you have to read the memos. They wrote that an argument could be made one that would not hold up under scrutiny. This is what they said in the memos. The the argument would not hold up under legal scrutiny, but the argument could be made in order to create just enough confusion that the Supreme Court, that the Supreme Court would force Congress to decide the election. An argument could be made, they wrote, for the following, okay? They, the argument is that state legislatures, not the state governor, not the state Supreme Courts, but state legislatures and state legislatures alone have the power to decide which slate of electors to send to Washington on January 6th. I've touched on this before, and I know it's a little confusing. It's supposed to be confusing. That's why these two lawyers worked with this theory, okay? Cheesebro, this is Cheesebro, and this is John Eastman. They were working off a bizarre reading of the Constitution, a crackpot reading of the Constitution called the Independent State Legislature Doctrine. The Independent State Legislature Doctrine. It was dismissed two months ago by the state Supreme, by the federal Supreme Court two months ago in a case that had nothing to do with the 2020 presidential election. But it was two months ago that the Supreme Court put to rest the independent state legislature doctrine. But because it wasn't settled by the Supreme Court, Cheesebro and John Eastman were working with this doctrine, okay? Are you confused? Because you're supposed to be. All this nonsense is intended to confuse everybody on the planet except the Supreme Court. That was the plan. They, Cheesebro and Eastman wrote these memos. Nobody understood them. They knew that it would have to go to the Supreme Court The Supreme Court would say, well, this election is just like 1886. Uh, uh, It has to, uh, Congress has to decide. That was part of the conspiracy. It's what Kenneth Cheesebro essentially put into writing in his legal memos. He basically said, throw so much dirt in the eyes of the American people into the eyes of the media, into the eyes of our politicians. Nobody will be able to explain it to anybody 
especially voters. Politicians won't be able to explain it to each other. And we would have all these phony experts screaming at one another. Nobody would be able to break through the noise. And so the Supreme Court would say, this is now the most contentious presidential election in American history. What choice do we have but to order Congress to decide who the winner is? And because of the electoral map, and I'll explain that in a second, Trump would have been declared the winner. He would have lost the popular vote as well as the Electoral College. But the idea was to create so much confusion that it would be decided by Congress. And if it's decided by Congress, Trump, because of the way they weighted the states, Trump would be the winner. So John Eastman knew this. Kenneth Cheesebro knew this. They know exactly what they were doing. Confuse everybody with the phony slate of electors and the independent state legislature doctrine, which the Supreme Court said is illegitimate two months ago. But there was no ruling from the Supreme Court back in November of 2020 when Kenneth Cheesebro and John Eastman wrote those memos. So the independent state legislature doctrine which has now been consigned to the dust heap of history. But the independent state legislature doctrine suggested that there's a clause in the U.S. Constitution. And in the U.S. Constitution, they claim all authority to regulate federal elections within each individual state falls upon and only upon that state's elected lawmakers in the state legislatures with no checks and balances from the governor of the state or the Supreme Court. That's the independent state legislature doctrine. And this idea was what fueled Trump and Giuliani and Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis to go to the battleground states and meet with Republican legislators to get them to reverse the election results and working off these memos written by John Eastman and Kenneth Cheesebro, Rudy, Jenna Ellis and Sidney Powell were able to say, look, you get to decide. It's the independent state legislature doctrine. It's in the Constitution. You, you get to decide as a state legislature who who gets to be sent to Washington, D.C., to represent you in the Electoral College. Okay? I know it's confusing. It's, you know, it's supposed to be confusing. Based on this crypto legal scholarship, based on the fake memos written by Kenneth Cheesebro and John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, sometimes Jenna Ellis, they travel to the seven battleground states that Biden won. And Rudy, Jenna Ellis, and Sidney Powell tried to convince those states, their Republican-controlled legislatures, that they had evidence of massive voter fraud. And because we have evidence of massive voter fraud, the state legislators 
under the independent state legislature doctrine could act unilaterally without the governor's permission or the state Supreme Court's oversight, they and they alone, just the legislative branch of each individual state, could send a slate of Trump electors to Washington on January 6 instead of Biden electors. They did this in seven key battleground states that Trump lost, and they insisted, they lied, and said, we have evidence of voter fraud. And they thought that the state legislators would say, well, if it's Rudy Giuliani and Trump's lawyers saying they have evidence of voter fraud, we should convene a special session of our legislature and uh, elect a brand new slate of electors to send to Washington for January 6. In the weeks leading up to December 14th, that's when each state certifies their slate of electors for the Electoral College, Trump's uh, chief of staff, Mark Meadows, relying on this bogus independent state legislature doctrine, he began uh, setting up phone calls between Donald Trump and the leaders of state legislatures in all seven battleground states. Something to hang on to so you can, un- re- you can understand this a little better. I think you all remember who Rusty Bowers is. How can you not remember the name Rusty Bowers? It's an easy name to recall. So I'll, I'll briefly tell you the Rusty Bowers story. He was the Republican Speaker of the Arizona State House in 2020. So Trump, along with Rudy and other Trump lawyers on the ground in Arizona, lobbied Rusty Bowers, the Republican Speaker of the Arizona State House, convincing, trying to convince Rusty Bowers that there was a massive voter fraud in Arizona. And they told him about the independent state legislature doctrine. And they said, you're the speaker of the Arizona State House. There's voter fraud. We have evidence of it. And you, Rusty Bowers, are well within your constitutional rights to send a slate of Trump electors to Washington on January 6th, even though Joe Biden had won Arizona. Rusty Bowers, about 70 years old at the time, speaker Republican Speaker of the Arizona State House told Trump and his operatives, I voted for Donald Trump, but I've looked into it. There was no fraud. Biden won, and I'm not going to participate. He had to go into hiding. The same way Brad Raffensperger The Secretary of State in Georgia had to go into hiding the same way Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, the Georgia, the Fulton County election counters had to go into hiding. Rusty Bowers, the speaker, Republican speaker of the Arizona State House, had to go into hiding. He was immediately doxxed. Armed men with rifles showed up in front of his house They would circle his home at all hours of the night, uh, shouting through loudspeakers that Rusty Bowers was a pedophile. 
All this going on while Rusty Bauer's eldest daughter was wasting away from cancer. She ended up dying in January of 2021 before Biden took office. She died to the sounds of Trump supporters, armed militia in Arizona, outside the home, calling her father a pedophile. And who did the Republican Party in Arizona end up censuring for all this? Rusty Bowers. A year later, the Arizona Republican Party censured Rusty Bowers, the Speaker of the Arizona State House, because he failed to act on Donald Trump's orders and threats to send a phony slate of electors to Washington. Rusty Bowers is no longer in politics. Okay? So, based on this independent state legislature doctrine, which the Supreme Court just threw out two months ago, Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's chief of staff, that's his mugshot right there, he picked up the phone and arranged for delegations from the state legislatures of Michigan and Pennsylvania to fly into Washington and meet with Donald Trump in the Oval Office so Donald Trump could work his charms and convince them that there was voter fraud in their state, that Biden didn't win, I won, and they should all go back to their respective state legislatures, throw out the Biden slate of electors, and replace them with a slate of Trump electors. Okay? Trump and his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, along with Rudy and the lawyers, Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis, were working off the memos written by the lawyers, John Eastman and Kenneth Cheesebro. And they've all been indicted by Fawny Willis on several counts, including conspiring to prepare false electoral college certificates submitting false electoral college certificates to the U.S. Congress, the National Archives, and the state of Georgia. As well, they've been indicted for conspiring to solicit others to make false statements in writing. At the top of the pyramid, at the top, is Donald Trump. At the very top. Then, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, then Rudy Giuliani, then the lawyers who traveled with Rudy, Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis, and below them are the lawyers John Eastman and Kenneth Cheesebro writing the memos, coming up with the blueprints, providing the documents for the phony electoral scheme, as well, the, the memos, they wrote the memos designed to convince Mike Pence that his job on January 6th was more than just ceremonial. And below all these lawyers waiting to become Donald Trump's acting attorney general was Jeffrey Clark. Okay, right below all these lawyers, deep in the bowels of the Justice Department, was Legs Clark, Jeffrey Clark, he was toiling away in the bowels of the Justice Department, working in their civil division, 
unnoticed, underappreciated. And because he's a graduate of Harvard, he wanted to make a name for himself. So right after the 2020 election, Congressman Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, he's a diehard Trump supporter who was organizing Stop the Steal rallies around the country. Congressman Scott Perry, who later ended up asking Donald Trump for a pardon for the role he played on January 6th, Congressman Scott Perry introduced Jeffrey Clark to Trump. Jeffrey Clark, an obscure, lowly lawyer in the Justice Department, made it clear to Trump that he was all in on election fraud. And Trump was firing his Attorney General Bill Barr because Attorney General Bill Barr said, I can't find election fraud. You lost. Trump was getting ready to fire acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen because Rosen also said there was no election fraud. So Trump decided, I've got it. I will. I will fire Jeffrey Rosen and make this obscure Justice Department official, Jeffrey Clark, my acting attorney general. And he, as acting attorney general, will appoint Sidney Powell as a special counsel. And together they would begin prosecuting Democrats for election fraud. And Jeffrey Clark, the obscure Justice Department official, the only the only lawyer in the Justice Department willing to acknowledge voter fraud, Jeffrey Clark, saw this as his moment. I'm going to be acting attorney general. So he drafted a letter to be signed by the acting attorney general, Jeffrey Rosen. And the idea behind this letter was Jeffrey Rosen, the acting attorney general, would uh, sign this letter that claimed there was massive evidence of voter fraud in Georgia. In the letter drafted by Jeffrey Clark, it was filled with lies that the Department of Justice had found massive evidence of voter fraud in the state of Georgia. And we here at the Justice Department, I, Jeffrey Rosen, acting attorney general, am urging you, the state legislature in Georgia, to convene a special session. Clark wrote the letter. Clark is the lowly, obscure Harvard graduate in the Justice Department, underappreciated, right? And he wrote the letter filled with lies about election fraud. And he tried to get the acting attorney, General Jeffrey Rosen, to sign it. And Rosen said, get out of my office and you're not allowed to talk to the president of the United States. It's against policy. But Jeffrey Clark, he was going to be acting attorney general. So he kept talking to Donald Trump. You're not allowed if you're in the Justice Department. The only people who are allowed to talk to the president of the United States are uh, the deputy attorney general and the attorney general. Okay. So, uh, Jeffrey Rosen refused to sign that letter. 
which is precisely why Trump wanted to fire Rosen as acting attorney general and replace him with Jeffrey Clark. Now, the fact that the letter was was never signed, the fact that it was never sent, that doesn't indemnify Jeffrey Clark. It is against the law for a Justice Department lawyer to draft a letter presenting phony evidence of voter fraud based on absolutely no evidence, trying to trick the acting attorney general, Jeffrey Rosen, into signing it. That is why Jeffrey Clark was indicted in Georgia on charges of criminal attempt to commit false statements and writings. Okay, criminal attempt. The letter never got sent or signed. So this is criminal attempt to commit false statements and writings. Okay, let me explain that. There is murder and there is attempted murder. It is against the law to murder somebody, but it is also against the law to attempt to murder somebody, right? If you try to murder somebody, but you fail, that is attempted murder, and it's against the law. In Jeffrey Clark's case, he wrote a letter making false statements that the, the Department of Justice had evidence of voter fraud in Georgia, and he tried, he attempted to get the acting attorney general, Jeffrey Rosen, to sign it and then mail it to the state of Georgia and have them convene a special session. He did not succeed in getting the letter signed or sent. But the attempt, the attempt at writing the letter, which he did, and then handing it to the acting attorney general, which he did, and attempting to trick the acting attorney general into committing these false statements into writing, signing this letter, he attempted to do that. Just because he got caught attempting to do this and it didn't go through, it doesn't mean he didn't commit a crime. Clark is also charged, along with 18 other defendants, with violating Georgia's state RICO laws. Do you see how this is a RICO prosecution, how this is a top-down criminal enterprise? It is a top-down criminal enterprise. All of the people in this criminal enterprise, except for two, Donald Trump and Mark Meadows, were lawyers, right? Everybody else at the top of the pyramid we're lawyers. Once you get past Donald Trump and Mark Meadows, you start hitting the lawyers. You hit, oh, Rudy Giuliani, then Sidney Powell, then Jenna Ellis. Then it goes down to John Eastman and Kenneth Cheesebro. They were all lawyers, all lawyers running the plays for this criminal conspiracy. They were running the plays from Washington, D.C., from the Oval Office. And some of these lawyers were either traveling to Georgia or communicating with a lower rung of lawyers, local lawyers in Georgia, 
on the ground, right? Out in the field, organizing the phony slate of electors to send to Washington, D.C. on January 6th. Also indicted, we're going down, we're drilling down in this criminal conspiracy. Below all these lawyers in Washington, D.C., we go to Atlanta, Georgia. Next up is the indicted local lawyer in Georgia, Ray Smith, along with Robert Cheeley, another local lawyer in Georgia, also indicted. These two lawyers were indicted for helping to organize the phony elector scheme on the ground in Georgia, dotting the phony I's and crossing the phony T's. I can't go through all 19 defendants this morning, but as you can see, I'm trying to drill down from the top of this criminal enterprise. At the top, right? At the top, you have two men who are not lawyers, Donald Trump and Mark Meadows. But then to orchestrate this conspiracy, this massive conspiracy, they immediately call in the attorneys, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis, then for the phony legal memos, John Eastman and Kenneth Cheesebro, and then kind of off to the side, waiting to be anointed acting attorney general is the obscure Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark, who is writing illegal letters claiming the Department of Justice found voter fraud in Georgia. And then below Jeffrey Clark on the state and local level, you have two lawyers in Atlanta carrying out the orders from Washington and orchestrating the phony elector scheme inside the state capitol. And below these lawyers, immediately below the lawyers, we hit the three phony electors who have been indicted. Three out of the 16 fake electors from Georgia have been indicted. Why not all 16? Because the rest of the fake electors have either cooperated with Fawny Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, or they're considered small potatoes, and they ended up in the column of unindicted co-conspirators. Now, Trump is in a lot of trouble. Trump is in a lot of trouble. So far, the lawyers have not flipped. But when you go down the food chain of these indictments, once you get past the lawyers, you start seeing people flipping. And you see that the three high-profile Georgia Republicans who are among the 16 phony electors, the three who have been indicted, early Friday afternoon, it became apparent that they have flipped. So once you get past the lawyers, you start saying some of the 19 co-conspirators down in Fulton County, Georgia, starting to flip. And it's getting really interesting and very scary for Donald Trump. OK, the three phony electors who have 
seem to have flipped are Sean Still, Kathleen Latham, and David Schaefer. These are all local Republicans in Georgia. They're among the 19 defendants indicted, and all three of them are being indicted for posing as electors. They, they presented, they forged, they're accused of forging documents posing as duly elected uh, electors to the Electoral College, okay? Sean Still, Kathleen Latham, and David Schaefer were specifically indicted for being phony electors. They had their mugshots taken, fingerprinted. They were the three of the 16 false electors who were accused of meeting in the state capital of Georgia on December 14th, 2020. They are accused of claiming to be what they weren't, duly elected uh, electors uh, to the Electoral College. So they've been indicted for forgery, forging documents, as well as impersonating public officers by falsely claiming to be the duly elected and qualified electors from the state of Georgia. They were not. They were part of this grand conspiracy to defraud the government of the United States, as well as deprive the citizens of Georgia their constitutional right to have their votes counted. Joe Biden won the popular vote in Georgia, not Donald Trump. Therefore, under Georgia law, it is a crime for a group of Republicans to gather in the state capitol on December 14th, forge documents that are then sent to the National Archives and the U.S. Congress and the state of Georgia, swearing that they are the duly elected slate of electors from Georgia. I want to pause for a second uh, because I know I'm going fast and I know there's a lot to digest here especially if you're one of our overseas listeners. And the last thing I want to do this morning is confuse anybody because the thrust of this entire conspiracy was to create confusion. So much confusion that people would take to the streets, storm the Capitol, which they did. And the confusion would result in the Supreme Court restoring order by insisting that Congress decide the fate of the election. So if you're confused by this, you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be. That was, that was the plan, to work off obscure election laws. Now, my longtime listeners know I hate bullies especially intellectual bullies, highly credentialed intellectual bullies like lawyers, John Eastman and Kenneth Chesbro, Cheesebro, who think they can use the law to obfuscate, confuse and get away with stealing an election by making the rest of us feel stupid. I hate to the core of my very being, anyone who tries to make someone feel stupid. 
this stuff is complicated because it's a conspiracy. And in this conspiracy, these lawyers relied on incomprehensible tangled webs of deceit that are designed to make people who are trying to figure out where exactly the crime is stupid, right? It was all designed to make anybody trying to untangle this feel stupid, which is why I love the television show Columbo. Peter Falk, if you've never seen Columbo, it's fantastic. Columbo plays stupid. Pretend you're dumber than the person who committed the crime. That's how you that's how you solve it. So the reason I'm obsessing with this indictment, these this RICO trial, uh, the reason I'm obsessing with this is because I want to understand it. And I totally get it that nobody understands the false elector scheme. It's impossible to wrap your head around. I can assure you, as the weeks go on and you follow these trials, you will understand it. Because it's not just Georgia. The phony elector scheme is now being tried in Michigan. The state attorney general of Michigan last month indicted the 16 Michigan Republicans who conspired to send a phony slate of electors to Washington from that state. And the Arizona state attorney general has launched an investigation into the 11 Republicans who conspired to send a phony slate of electors to Washington from that state. Nevada is also investigating the phony electors scheme. Maybe Wisconsin will, we don't know. So again, you would be forgiven for not understanding any of this since it involves the Electoral College, something a good number of my listeners want to get rid of. Okay, I'm going to return to the three indicted fake electors who seem to have flipped in Georgia in a second. But I want to review. I want to review because I know I tend to repeat myself, but repetition is the key to learning. It's also, repetition is also the key to spreading lies. Donald Trump learned that from Dr. Joseph Goebbels, that if you repeat a lie often enough, eventually it becomes the truth. Lies are simple and you can repeat them over and over again. And the only way to combat these lies being repeated over and over again is to repeat the truth so often that eventually enough people can see the lies. So just so we're clear, and I know I'm repeating myself, the phony electors scheme, according to the indictments, was dreamed up by two of the defendants Kenneth Cheesebro and John Eastman, those are the two attorneys steeped in constitutional law who thought they had discovered a way to short circuit the most undemocratic instrument of our democracy, the Electoral College. Now, you got to remember that in 2016, Donald Trump lost the popular vote, but he became president by winning the Electoral College. Republicans cannot win 
the popular vote. Since 1988, only one Republican, George W. Bush, won the popular vote. That was in 2004 in the middle of a war. So Republicans know the Electoral College like the back of their hand. It's the only way they can win. Uh, so they know the Electoral College. Uh, Kenneth Cheesebro and John Eastman wrote a series of memos that Trump acted upon. They laid out plans on how to work America's Byzantine Electoral College system, battleground state by battleground state, all these battleground states, Joe Biden won. But they wrote these memos figuring that election laws are so unfathomable. Low-level political operatives in each state would just go along because who are they to argue with the president of the United States or his lawyers? According to these memos, the plan was to get these phony slates of electors sent to Washington by January 6th so that Mike Pence, when counting the Electoral College votes, would declare there are two sets of electors, for example, from Georgia. Okay? He would also, according to the plan, we also have two slates of electors from Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania. That was the plan. But in this indictment, the plan was Mike Pence would say we have an issue here. There are two slates of electors representing Georgia. And he would then declare there is sufficient confusion and declare the certification of the presidential election must be postponed until we get to the bottom of this. So as vice president, I'm also the president of the Senate. I cannot in good faith certify the presidential election right now, we have to wait until we resolve these competing sets of electors that have been sent to Washington, D.C., okay? Confusion. Confusion. This was set up, if you read the memos, Eastman and, and Cheesebro are saying these are not legally sound arguments, but it will create confusion and bias time. In the memos, Eastman and Cheesebro pretty much say that, yes, the phony slates of electors are illegal, but don't worry, their purpose, the reason we're convening these phony slates of electors in state capitals is to create just enough confusion that people would be whipped up on the streets Republicans and Democrats would be going to their respective corners and, and fighting it out in Congress and on television. And eventually the Supreme Court would be forced to intervene the same way they did in 2000 with Gore v. Bush. And in this case, they would order the election to be settled in accordance with the Constitution by Congress. That was the plan to create confusion. That was why Donald Trump had his, his armed imbeciles storm the Capitol, create so much confusion that they have to postpone the certification and get the Supreme Court to throw it back to Congress. If it got thrown back to Congress, each state, according to law, 
gets one vote for president. For example, California would add up its delegation to Congress. And since California sends more Democrats than it does Republicans, California would get to cast one vote for Joe Biden. New York, also a blue state, would also cast one vote for Joe Biden. Illinois, one vote for Joe Biden. Those three states alone are like, I don't know, what, one third of the United States population? Doesn't matter. They would each get but one vote. And so would some red states. And there are a lot more red states. Arkansas, one vote. South Dakota, one vote. North Dakota, one vote. East, is there an East Dakota? A West Dakota? Uh, Wyoming, one vote. Montana, one vote. All these red states where nobody lives or at least shouldn't live, all these red states that lack world-class universities, world-class museums, theaters, ballet, opera, strip clubs, they too would get one vote and there's more of them than there are of us, at least red states. There are more blue state people than red state people, but there are more red states than blue states. And because there are more red states than blue states, Trump would win the 2020 presidential election through an act of Congress, and it would all seem legitimate. That was the plan. The same way he won the 2016 presidential election through the Electoral College, popular vote, will of the people be damned, right? Work the system. That's what Republicans are great at and Democrats are not. Because most Democrats are from blue states and they're hyper-educated and they don't want to go to Montana or Wyoming and deal with those people. But the red states, the people, the Republicans go to the red states. They work the system. They get deep into the gears of the Electoral College, recalibrate the wheels and pulleys so that Donald Trump can get another four years. In other words, Republicans have given up on winning honestly. You win by any means necessary. That is how the Republicans win, because their policies are unpopular. Ginny Thomas, the wife of Clarence Thomas, who flunked the state bar exam in Nebraska, like uh, did I ever mention that Jim Jordan, he's the Republican chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, he attended law school, but he couldn't pass the bar. Have I ever mentioned that on the show, that Jim Jordan, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, went to law school, but he's too stupid to pass the bar exam, so he can't practice law? Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas's wife flunked the state bar exam in Nebraska. She went to law school, and I'm pretty sure she can't practice law because she flunked the state bar exam in Nebraska. Well, she was very much involved in the Stop the Steal rallies. She was there on January 6th. She just didn't go into the Capitol. 
And up until January 6th, she was texting Mark Meadows saying, this election is a battle between good and evil. She's also good friends with John Eastman, who served as Clarence Thomas's law clerk. John Eastman and Ginny Thomas, uh, they believed that the 2020 election between Joe Biden and Donald Trump was a war between good and evil. That's what they wrote. That's what Ginny Thomas texted Mark Meadows. This is a war between good and evil. And if you're fighting a war between good and evil, then it doesn't matter how you beat the devil. All that matters is you win. This is why religion is so dangerous. This is why injecting anybody's religion into the public square is so dangerous. You know, there are a lot of high-powered legal minds desperately in need of antipsychotic medication and 30 years of analysis. And too many of them, instead of being put on meds or seeing a shrink, they turn to religion. And religion only exacerbates the psychosis. Uh, it trains these high-powered legal minds that it's okay to see things that aren't there. And it trains them to reduce everything down to good versus evil. And once they reduce things to good versus evil, they throw out their legal training, they throw out everything they learned in their elite private, from their elite private colleges that try to instill in them the principles of the Enlightenment. And instead, they weaponize everything they were taught and use it for their psychotic battle against evil. We see this with Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, they're all in the Senate, as well as Governor Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy. They all went to elite private colleges. Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, Governor Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy, they either graduated from Harvard Law or Yale Law, and it didn't work for them. It didn't work. They got out. You know, they were they were still angry. They were still who they were, miserable. And uh, they uh, they felt like nothing and they wanted revenge. And they turned to some kind of religion in Ted Cruz's case, Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley uh, and Ron DeSantis. They turned to religion and Vivek Ramaswamy. He turned to Ayn Rand and they throw out everything they were taught. They stripped themselves down to one basic Manichaean battle between good and evil, and their law school training becomes a set of tools, not for justice, not for helping people or finding truth, but defeating evil. And this is why I say, take your religious beliefs and shove them where the sun don't shine. I don't care what religion you believe in when it comes to making law or politics, take your religious beliefs and shove them where the sun don't shine. I believe Washington, D.C., our capital is a temple 
a temple of democracy. Our founding fathers designed Congress to look like a temple, a temple of democracy. They didn't want the First Amendment, the Establishment Clause. They did not want your religion injected into political discourse. Take your religious beliefs and shove them where the sun don't shine. Okay? All right, so I'm done with the lawyers, at least in the indictment. And uh, I want to go back down to the, the three phony electors who were indicted and who I think have flipped, okay? Uh, as I said earlier this month, Georgia's RICO statutes are structured in such a way that the Fulton County District Attorney, Fawny Willis, can go big. She can go big. She can indict 19 defendants. And then, as the trial date nears, she can try to pick off as many of them as she can, try to get them to flip in order to make the strongest case possible against the capo tutti de tapo, Donald J. Trump. Okay? I don't think there are going to be 19 defendants in this trial. We're going to start seeing individuals flip. It's going to start from the bottom and work its way up to, we'll see. Certainly anybody who's not a lawyer is going to flip. Uh, these three phony Georgia electors, David Schaefer. At one time, David Schaefer was the chairman of the Georgia GOP. Sean Still, indicted, is now serving in the Georgia State Senate. And Kathleen Latham is a local GOP official. All of them indicted for being phony electors from Georgia. But on Friday, their attorneys asked that their cases be severed from this indictment and bumped into a federal courtroom. Their lawyers claim they are the victims of Donald Trump's coercion and lies. Lawyers for State Senator Sean Still, one of the phony electors indicted, lawyers for State Senator Sean Still say he's not a career politician. He's in the pool building business and he just became a politician, but he doesn't know what he's doing. And he was easily misled by Trump's lawyers into signing these phony documents claiming he was part of Georgia's duly elected slate of electors. Your Honor, my client isn't a career politician. He's just a dumb Republican. He had no idea what he was signing, Your Honor. In the filing, uh, the lawyers representing Sean Still and the other two phony electors claimed that an unnamed lawyer representing Donald Trump bullied them into forging the documents. Okay? They didn't name, at least it's not in the filing, they didn't name the lawyer. Okay? I'm going to assume it's one of the local lawyers who bullied them, and that local lawyer will flip. This is going to be like dominoes, right? You're going to start getting the local lawyers flipping, and then it gradually makes its way up to Kenneth Cheesebro, John Eastman, Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, 
and Rudy. They just all start flipping to save their asses because Donald Trump isn't paying anybody's legal fees. Right? I've been through this. The Save America PAC, Donald Trump's Save America PAC has raised hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. He's paying his legal fees through the Save America PAC. He's paying Walt Nautis legal fees, the Save America PAC, his valet who was indicted in Miami for helping him hide classified documents from the FBI. But Donald Trump isn't paying any of the legal fees for his 18 fellow co-conspirators. Okay, so you got three low level indictees flipping on Friday. And it's almost an identical story that we're hearing from some of the fake electors indicted in Michigan. They are now turning state's evidence and telling the same exact story, right? I mentioned the state attorney general in Michigan indicted the 16 fake electors in Michigan. They're starting to flip. They're turning state's evidence and saying Trump's lawyers bullied and misled them into forging these documents. As I've been saying, these criminal trials are truly an indictment of the legal profession. There are 1.3 million lawyers here in America. Law school is not free. And so to pay off their loans and their lifestyle, Way too many lawyers create mischief. They create injustices where none exist to pay their bills. And the ones who don't do this, well, they keep their mouths shut about it. They see it, but they don't do anything about it. You know, lawyers are a lot like cops. They figure, you know, if I see my partner breaking the law, but I don't break the law, then I didn't break any law. Well, if you think that, you should go back to law school and learn the law. Lawyers are supposedly officers of the court. And like a cop, if they witness a crime, they are legally obligated to report that crime. Right? Now, we know that cops, when they have a partner... When they when they when their partner is having a bad day and stops a black guy, uh, hey, your air freshener dangling from your rearview mirror, I'm going to have to write you up for having an air freshener dangling from your uh, rearview mirror because you're black. And then next thing you know, the cop is conducting an illegal search, and then smacking the black driver around, and the partner, the the innocent. The guy who thinks he's innocent, the, the cop still sitting in the car, uh, thinks, well, he's having a bad day. Bob, patrolman Bob is having a bad day. Uh, but I'm good. I, I didn't smack the black driver around. I'm a good guy. No, you're an accessory after the fact. If your partner is committing a crime and it is criminal to do that to a driver, and you don't report the crime committed by your partner, that makes you a criminal. The same goes for every single lawyer in America. 
How many crimes have you witnessed as a lawyer committed by other lawyers in your in your firm or on your legal team? And you turn a blind eye and say, well, things like that, you know, nothing surprises me. Nothing surprises me. I have a friend who's a lawyer and sometimes every couple of years he'll describe a crime committed by some other lawyer, minor crime, right? Billing crime, stuff like that. And he says, nothing surprises me. And I say, you know, if nothing surprises you, you should stop being a lawyer. You should be surprised and shocked and you should report that lawyer to your non-existent bar association. There's no such thing as a bar, so I'll get into that in a second. Uh, you know, John Eastman, uh, his trial before the California bar resumes next week. This guy, John Eastman, they've been trying to disbar John Eastman, what, for two years for the role he played on January 6th? Rudy Giuliani, his law licenses in Washington, D.C. and New York have been suspended. But still, still, his law licenses have not been stripped from him. The entire legal profession is a criminal enterprise. It is a racket worthy of a RICO prosecution. Every single lawyer in America is complicit for not speaking up and working to disbar the scumbags who have destroyed the criminal justice system in America. The streets of New York, uh, if you take the subways, the streets of New York, the subways are filled with signs paid for by the New York City Police Department. The signs read, see something, say something. See something, say something. Okay, you first. Turn your partner in if you're a cop. You saw something, say something. If you're a lawyer, turn your partners in. Otherwise, you're all part of a criminal enterprise just like the 19 defendants down in Georgia. I'm David Feldman, reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. 